Good morning. I hear that we have an excellent crowd in our uh, Sunday school class this morning for adults. I'm so pleased with that. But for those of you who have come here this morning with to uh, hear the sermon, I am thankful that you're here. Um, I don't know if you're aware of what it's like to be the wife of a pastor, but uh, a typical routine for my wife, I own, is that on Saturday evenings, uh, she gets to listen to me rehearse my sermon. And she actually times me, and she makes critical comments, and one of the benefits of having a wife that has got a degree from Bible college and is a diligent student of the Word is having someone that can speak truth to me when I need to hear it. Now, that is not intended to give you permission to go out and buy I own high-end watches, all right? Anything that I have done that has taken me way over time on a sermon is totally my fault, right? But she does help me with that. Uh, last night, as I was going through my sermon, I own said, Dave, you've lost me on a couple of points. And I so love the book of Acts. And I so love the theology that we're going to be looking at this morning that uh, it's easy to get carried away in that. And she said, Dave, why don't you just talk to me? Tell me what you're excited about. So with apologies, that's what I'm going to do this morning, right? I'm going to uh, just explain to you a little bit of one of my favorite parts of this book. And that is that this is a book of history. It can't be missed. You see, when we think of the Gospels, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those people who put our canon together for us, the order of the books of the Bible, wanted to put Matthew first because Matthew is one of the apostles. Not all the writers of the Gospels are apostles, but Matthew is. And Matthew's choice was to write about Jesus as the Son of God, the King. It's a very royal Gospel powerful. So people said this would be a great way to begin the New Testament. And most people believe for the first 1,500 years of the church that Matthew was the first one to write the story of Jesus. But we have since learned by manuscript evidence that that's not the case, that probably Mark, the Gospel of Mark, was the first. It's the shortest, it's the most concise, and it's probably the one upon which Matthew and Luke drew upon when they did their Gospels. And then people say, well, which of the Gospels is the most uh, interesting to read? And people jump right over the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they get to John. John is full of miracles. John is inspiring when you read it. It's so graphic as it's focused largely upon that final week of Jesus' life, the Passion Week. And somehow in all of that, we miss Luke. Luke is just sort of the third gospel. It's a repeat of Matthew. They share almost 70% of the same material. And so we don't pay a lot of attention to it. And to add insult to injury, the second volume of Luke's writing, the book of Acts that we started last week, is separated by that gospel of John. Now, if I had my way, we would have the writings of Luke, book one, book two, they belong together. Doug did a great job last week explaining to us in his introduction of the book of Acts how they share a common uh, dedication to Theophilus, to a man of prominence in uh, Luke's day. But Luke is at heart 
a historian. You say, well, what difference does that make, Dave? Well, it makes a lot of difference. You see, sometimes when we look at scriptures, especially a book of history, we think, well, this is a spirit book. Uh, this is a supernatural book. This is a book about events and people that are in that genre of scripture. And therefore, we should feel free to accept some of it as it is written as truth and other parts of it just couldn't possibly be truth because those kind of things don't happen. I don't see them happening today, so how should I believe that they are happening in the past? Well, let me just spend a couple of moments this morning explaining to you the genre of historiography uh, in the ancient world. Uh, the ancient people took histories very seriously, whether you're reading Herodotus or Thucydides or Tacitus, uh, these ancient historians had a method. They had a purpose as they wrote history. And the hearers of the word, now notice I didn't say readers, but hearers, because most often in the ancient text, people listened to things being read. Uh, when they listened to it, they valued truth and accuracy. Uh, no historian worth his salt ever tried to exceed truth and accuracy. These were so important to them. Now, the Greeks wrote with a certain rhetorical style, a flourish, if you will, so they wouldn't just say a general marched with his armies into a city and destroyed it. No, they would give you much more graphic pictures as they were listening. You know, you would hear bones breaking and blood splattering, and that was kind of a good history to a Greek. Romans, as they wrote their histories, uh, love to put words in the mouth of important people. Usually their histories were commissioned by people of money, senators, emperors, uh, merchants. And so in order to sort of pay them back, they would put speeches in their mouth, things that they said that were so important. But Luke doesn't write that way. Luke is dedicated to historical truth Inaccuracy. He shares the same methodology that the ancient historians used. He went to sources. He went to eyewitnesses, and he said, tell me what happened. What did you see? What was that like? And as you read it, you, you realize Luke is the only writer of the New Testament that gives us the full story from the birth of Christ all the way to the inception of the church and beyond. What a massive amount of information. Luke's two works together make him the most uh, prolific writer of the New Testament. Some 2,000 verses he writes, more even than Paul, more than the John. Uh, Luke is the dominant writer of the New Testament, and yet how little time we spend reading his works. Because of his dedication to historical accuracy, because his method is outlined for us at the beginning of his works, we should have a high confidence in the probability that what he is sharing with us is actual truth. Now the hearers of histories in the ancient world, if they felt that fabrication was happening, that the historian uh, was lying about the events, his works were destroyed. In fact, today, only about 2% of all the Greek histories written still exist, that are extant, that you could get a hold of, that you could read for yourself. 
Most of the other ones have perished. But from what we know, from what other people write about those histories, it was important for them to be rather recent to the events that they tell. In other words, the better the history was the ones that were closest to the actual events. Now, if we time the book of Acts, that Luke wrote this between 70 and 90 AD, he is within one lifespan of the actual events that he has recorded as far as the life of Christ is concerned. But when we get into the later chapters of the book of Acts, all of a sudden, let's say in Acts chapter 28, he switches to the pronoun we. We did this. We did that. Why? Because he actually was there. What better history could you have than by someone who was actually there? It's an accurate portrayal. Now, why am I passionate about this? Because probably in ways that we have never seen before, at least in this country, the word of God is under assault. People doubt it. Uh, if you, I, I hear so many college students say to me, I'm really excited about the Lord, Dave. I recently became a Christian, and I want to know more about the Bible, so I'm going to enroll at the University of Iowa in a New Testament survey class. It, it's going to teach me what the Bible says. And unfortunately, if you do that, more the likelihood is that you're going to be told that what we have here is a collected compendium of myths that have been put together way beyond the time period that they purportedly were written, and you can't have any confidence in them. It makes you feel good. It gives you inspiration. But we should never take this as true history. And I'm saying no. I disagree with that assessment. Luke is a historian. Accuracy and truth were as important to him as of any of the other ancient historians. His timing for when he wrote this second book of his is so close to the events as they happened that he had firsthand accounts. He had eyewitnesses reporting to him. And so what we read in this book, as we go forward in this sermon series over the next few weeks, we are reading a man who was there 2,000 years ago. And the words of this history book should be as impacting to us now as they were to his audience in the first and second centuries. This is a great book. And we, the people of God, have to give it honor. We have to give it its due, its place. This is something that we can have supreme confidence in. We, of all people, should have read it and understand it. Last week, Doug said that he challenged us to read through this entire book in one setting. Now, I used to feel sorry when I would similarly challenge people to do that until the Harry Potter series came out, and I saw 12-year-olds reading 700-page books, and I thought, we should never apologize again for challenging people to read any book of the New Testament. Uh, Doug said it may take you two hours. Well, I'm going to give you a further assignment today, so listen up for that. Something to do while you read it. So, my conclusion is that when we come to the historiography of the book of Acts, I think that we should have a high degree of confidence in believing that it is true. And the reason that that is so important is, is that if, <laughs> and this is the great part, if what is recorded here is true, and if this is a history of the church and its inception, then it is a promise to us that we as the church of Jesus Christ, 
we the church today should have the same expectation as that first century church we should learn from it we should glean from it but we should have a spirit of expectation that the power of the holy spirit the inspiration of that spirit the 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 ruling of jesus christ in our life would be just as true for us as it was for the apostles So as we look at our section today, we're in verse 6 of chapter 1. There's three things that we should get from today's passage. The first is that we as Christians should be expected to live a life of expectation. That life of expectation is that Jesus Christ is certainly going to return, that his return is imminent. There's nothing, there's nothing that stands in the way of Christ returning at 11 o'clock this morning or tomorrow morning or next year or 100 years from now. We just don't know when, but he should be returning. We know that he should be returning. This is one of the major themes of the book of Acts. Secondly, we're going to see the power of the Holy Spirit. And we need to have an understanding of why that's so important for us today as believers. Thirdly, we're given a mission. We're told this is what we should be doing until Christ returns. And there should be no doubt as to what that mission is. So with that understanding, let's jump into it. I hope you have your Bibles with you, that you'll open them up, and that you'll start reading with me as has already been read so ably this morning, but we're going to start in verse 6. So, when they had come together, who are they? Well, the witnesses. The witnesses of Christ's resurrection. Those who had seen him for the last 40 days walk this earth after he had been hung on the cross and after the stone had been rolled away on that first Easter morning when Jesus appears, first to whom? The women? To Peter? To John? To the 1500, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15? They saw him. They were ministered to by him. And sadly, in their minds at least, that time was coming to an end. So when they, these witnesses, had come together, and probably should be in sharp focus here, are the 11 apostles, Judas being excluded, one of the 12. Uh, but these 11 have come together, and they asked him, and this is the question of the hour. This is what everybody was wondering at this time. Lord, will you at this time Restore the kingdom to Israel. In other words, when is this going to happen? All the things that we expected as we were trained in the Old Testament truths from the book of Daniel and through the prophets about the coming of the Messiah, this has been such a different experience. You didn't come to change the world. You didn't come to raise Israel into prominence. You came to die for sins, to purposely die on the cross, so that we might have salvation. We didn't understand that until you came and you told us the truth and you explained the scriptures to us and like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, our hearts became inflamed and passioned with the truth of what you were saying as you opened up the word of God from the time of Moses to our present day. However, that doesn't mean that's the only reason that the Son of God is coming. We know that Jesus has got a further purpose and these disciples, these 11, were asking, is this the time? Great question. 
As we continue reading, he, that is Jesus, said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. It's not up to you to know that. Don't worry about it. The divine timetable is unknowable. I don't know it. You don't know it. The angels don't know it. Only the Father knows it. Now, I believe that the apostles thought very much that Jesus would return before they saw death. As you read through the epistles of Paul, he certainly had that belief. James had that belief. Peter had that belief. They didn't know. And yet it was their undying hope that Jesus would return. You see, first and foremost, the book of Acts is an eschatological theology. It's a study of end times. It's a belief that Jesus is returning. We may differ in the body of Christ. And when I say that, I don't mean just Parfew. I mean all the churches of Jesus Christ, the Roman Catholics, the Eastern Orthodox, the Protestants. We may differ as to when Christ is going to return. We may be premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial. We may be pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. doesn't matter. What we all agree on is that Christ returns to end history. This will be a time of judgment. All the things that are predicted and prophesied will come to pace, will come to be truth. We should live our lives with that certainty. As you wake up every morning, you should wake up with the certainty, with the assuredness that Jesus is coming back. You should live your lives in the umbrella of that truth. I know, Jesus, that you're returning. I have a mission. I don't have forever. My time may actually be cut short because of your return. That's how the apostles lived. That's how we should live. Remember what I said. If Luke is reporting to us with truth and accuracy, whatever he says about this early church, whatever he says about these apostles should be true of us today as well. If we have to apologize for anything, I think that when I look at the church in the 20th century, especially the evangelical church, it is that we became way too focused on times. Starting with the Schofield Reference Bible in the early 1900s, people became inflamed with the desire to know, when is this going to happen? You see, the challenges of the culture of that day, of the historical events of that day, World War I, the Great Depression that just smothered the world, that brought on such poverty and hunger and famine. World War II with its Holocaust and all the things that made it such a horrible deal. Made people think, well, this must be when Jesus is returning. How can we survive tomorrow? We can't. But we have the promise of Christ's return. It must be imminent. As a new believer, I was asked to uh, go to a conference in Omaha at a restaurant and it was just a noon meeting it wasn't long but uh, I was told that it was being run by a famous evangelist by the name of Jack Van Impey and uh, Jack's whole point was that he had done the math he had analyzed what it means to live one generation and he decided that Christ had to return in 1985 he said that clearly Christ will return in 1985 he wasn't alone in this. We had the late great planet Earth by Hal Lindsey in the early 70s. All of these books sought to detail ways in which to figure out that Jesus was coming. And not just that he was coming, but here's the date in which he was coming. 
And if you're of any kind of age close to mine, we heard this happen over and over again. People would say, well, Christ will be coming back now. Christ will be coming back now. Christ will be coming back now. And for us in the church, it was disappointing because Christ didn't return. It made some of us doubt our faith. But can you imagine what it was like for those in the world looking from the outside in and hearing us as the church of Jesus Christ make these kind of pronouncements? Jesus will return. 1985, the year 2000, so forth. And when it doesn't happen, we basically are giving the world the permission that they need to ignore the message that we proclaim of salvation through Christ and Christ alone. That the only way to the God the Father is through his son, Jesus Christ. We have too much of a fixation upon those prophetical conferences, upon those dates. My own pastor told me as an old man, long after he had retired, and I chuck some of this up to just old man disease, which I now share. But he said to me, Dave, if the Lord doesn't return by the year 2000, then everything that I believe is false. And sort of with tongue in cheek, I remember saying to him, oh, great, Walt, now you've done it. The Bible says that no man knows the hour or the time. And if Jesus wanted to come back in 2000, now he can't do it. Because then you could say you figured it out. And he looked at me like I was insane. But I wanted him to have that assurance. We can't know that date. We can't know that time. That doesn't excuse us from living a life in which we have great expectation that Christ could return at any moment. That has been the hope of the church since the days of the book of Acts. And it continues to today. When properly put in its place, it means just this. I'm not free to live my everyday life like the world around me. I, am, I cannot be focused merely upon making a living, merely upon raising children, merely upon attending soccer games and basketball games, or of self-pleasure. My focus as a Christian has got to be that the carrot in front of me is the promise of the return of Jesus Christ to complete the mission that he began, to fulfill the prophecies that are made throughout the Old Testament, that he will come in judgment this time. And yes, to answer the question that the 11 ask him at this moment, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He will. You know, assuredly, he will. We just don't know when. I could be preaching this 200 years from now, and it would make it no less true that Christ is returning. Secondly, what does Jesus say to them? After he says, it's not for you to know those times. Our second point is, he says, but you will receive power in verse 8. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Second thing we need to understand is the relationship of the Holy Spirit to our lives. And the only way that we can really understand that is if we understand how the Holy Spirit worked in Jesus' life. This is important to know. Uh, as my wife was listening to me last night, she was saying, Dave, be careful here. Uh, we're going to have to take a little journey into theology this morning. So sharpen your minds. Maybe some of you, you already know this, but others... 
just bear with me for a second. When you think of the fact that Jesus is one of the members of the Trinity, he's a member of the Godhead, he is the Son, and that we know that he existed for all eternity, but there was a certain point in time when he became incarnate, when he took on flesh. And we're always trying to understand that because our theology tells us that Jesus is fully man and fully God. And that tension that exists, we're always trying to state that in a way that makes sense. How can anybody be fully man and fully God? We know that's the orthodox truth, but I can't explain it. I'm with you. It's hard to understand. Our best passage to look at when we wrestle with this, of course, is Philippians chapter 2. Now I'm going to turn there real quick, where the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the church at Philippi, and he takes a moment and aside in his first part. Remember, almost all of Paul's epistles begin with a chapter or two on theology, and then it ends with a chapter or two on praxis, on how we should live as Christians. That's not a mistake. That doesn't mean we have the permission to skip over the first couple of chapters of any of his letters, but that we should delve into them with the purpose of understanding. But he says in chapter 2 of Philippians, verse 6, who, though, and he's speaking about Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, in the Greek that word is kenosis, to empty oneself, uh, this passage is called the great kenotic chapter. It means it's the chapter where we understand the relationship of Jesus from his position as God to how he became a man. He emptied himself, how? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, when we think about Jesus being both man and God, sometimes we think of it like, well, when Jesus became incarnate, he took off his omnipresence, his omnipotence, his omniscience, like a person taking off different garments or different pieces of their clothing. I take off my coat, my shirt, my T-shirt, and what are you left with? He took off his godliness, and he's left with just being a man. But interestingly enough, the way that Paul writes this is almost an oxymoron. He emptied himself. It doesn't mean that he took off his godliness because he then says things that add to him. But taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness, of, everything that he says verbally here is that he's adding to himself, not subtracting. Jesus' addition of his humanity is what allows him to be totally man and totally God. I believe that Jesus willfully suppressed his godliness so that his humanity was not overwhelmed. It by no means stated that Jesus gave up on his godliness. So where does that leave us? Well, the church has wrestled with this for the last 2,000 years. We had some that believed that Jesus was totally God, that his humanity was of no consequence. We call them docetists. Docetists in the Greek means an illusionist, that Jesus' humanity was merely an illusion. 
And at the Council of Nicaea, we set that straight. That's not the way to think about Jesus. He's not just God. On the other hand, we have the Ebionites, who, amongst other things, believed that Jesus was totally a man and that he was such a brilliant man, so blessed by God, he gave the appearance of being God. But he wasn't really any different than you or I. Two extremes, both wrong. You can't hold to those. And then you have Arius, a, a well-meaning priest from the, the land of Britain who decided about 300 years after Christ to come down and set everybody straight. And he said, well, this is how we should think of Jesus. Jesus was really the first created. He was better than the angels. He is blessed by God. He is like God, but he isn't God himself. You see, Arius was not setting out himself to be a heretic, unorthodox. He just was so in love with God the Father. He felt that anybody who was compared to him couldn't possibly measure up. So he sails into the ancient world and talks to different bishops all over the globe and tries to communicate to them, this should be our theology. Jesus is a God, but he's not the God. Now today, we see Arianism expressed in a major cult, Jehovah Witnesses. Jehovah Witnesses don't like John 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, right? And they would like us to interpret that as the Word was a God, not the God. I love to have a Jehovah Witness come to my front door. And they say, well, this is what the original Greek says. Then I like to get my Greek Bible out, open it up to John 1, and turn it to them and say, read that for me. Show me where it says what you're saying. And of course, that always flabbergasts them. They're like, well, I mean, I've been told that's what it says. And I can tell you that's not what it says. It says, in the beginning was the Logos, the Word. John is trying to say, Jesus is the God. We can never compromise that. However, we cannot lose sight of his humanity either. Today, I would say that most of us walk around as evangelicals in this day and age, and we're a pragmatic docetists. Docetists are those that could believe Jesus was God and that his humanity was but an illusion. When I talk to people about Christ, when Iona and I teach Life of Christ studies, people always have no problem in believing that Jesus is God. They have a lot of problem with seeing his full humanity. There's something that cheapens Jesus in their minds if we make him fully human. But here's the problem, or maybe here's the solution. When Jesus came, when he became incarnate, it wasn't with the purpose of just God becoming man. It was with the purpose of setting an example for us, his followers, to follow. Jesus wanted us to see what it would be like if the second Adam, as Paul calls him, had done everything right, just like he could have in the Garden of Eden, but chose not to. This second Adam chose to do it right. And the exciting thing about it is as Jesus lives life, even as we live life, he's saying, listen, I'm, I'm going to suppress my godliness so that I can show you how to do it correctly. I want you to understand that you as people, even fallen people, 
have the ability to manifest God in your life even as I do. And how does that happen? How is that possible? Well, we're told over and over again in the Gospels, it's possible because the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ. It's possible because of the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ. We cannot ever lose sight of that. It's the Holy Spirit that moves upon Mary and helps her to conceive this man, God. It's the Holy Spirit that helps Jesus, as it says, as he grew up as a boy, grew increasingly in wisdom and knowledge and authority. It was the Holy Spirit that was there at Jesus' baptism with the Father. When Jesus went into the water, we see images of both. It's a, it's a perfect picture of the Trinity. It's the Holy Spirit that leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tested and to do battle with Satan as he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. It's the Holy Spirit that we're told over and over again that allows Jesus to do the miracles that he does, to cast out demons, to have the wisdom to verbally jar and spar, excuse me, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's the Holy Spirit that gives Jesus the strength and the courage as he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, let this cup pass from me. Jesus had already told his followers, when you have prayers that are too deep, just groanings, essentially, in your heart. The Spirit cries out to God, Abba, Father. And at the Garden of Gethsemane, we see that perfectly lived out. It's the Spirit that gives Jesus the ability to say, not my will, but your will, Father. It's the Spirit that we are told in other parts, especially in Pauline theology, that God used to raise Jesus from the dead in the resurrection. Jesus promised his followers that when I am gone from you, I will send one to you who will bring you into remembrance of all the things that I've taught you, who will give you the courage to stand before those who would persecute you so that you may speak a testimony of truth to an unbelieving and darkened world. When Jesus ascends here, what does he say? Let's go back to Acts. You will receive power. When? It's a temporal clause. It's timed. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. It's graphically portrayed in Acts chapter 2. It comes upon the entire church. What we know is that Jesus had already bequeathed the Holy Spirit upon these 11. Back in the upper room, right? When he is resurrected, God gives him the authority to do all. And our creeds tell us, like the Confession of Constantinople in 381, that the Holy Spirit is sent both by the Father and by the Son. This is our inheritance as believers. Jesus in the Gospels lives his life as a man, empowered by the Spirit, so that we, in Luke's second book, the Acts of the Apostles, can see what it means to live a Spirit-filled life. Too often when I mention the Holy Spirit, people think of, oh, yeah, be filled with the Spirit. That's a feeling. When we do worship music and I feel moved, that's the Holy Spirit. I, I love the Holy Spirit. I don't really know what I'm talking about when I talk about the Holy Spirit, if we're honest. 
We don't really understand it. Pastor Doug last week used one of his songs, one of his favorite tunes from John Coltrane in jazz as to explain the structure of the book of Acts. Well, I say when we get to this theology of the Spirit, too many of us, if I can bring us back to my day, would be along the lines of Boston's song, More Than a Feeling. It is more than a feeling. Being filled with the Spirit is less about feeling than it is about truth. I can't live the Christian life unless the Holy Spirit is animating me, bringing to life the purposes of God in what I say and what I do and what I believe. To do otherwise is to work in the flesh, and that always ends in disaster for us. Jesus is setting an example. He is telling us, this is the way you should live. This is what should happen. Lastly, we have a mission. Follow along with me here. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. I wish that we had a whole nother Sunday to talk just about this point. It's our commission. We see that Luke has already said this back in Luke chapter 27. We see it repeated in Matthew 28. We call it the Great Commission. It's like when Elijah passed his mantle, his cloak, to Elisha and said, here is my authority and my power. If you remember that Old Testament story and that, that event, and Elisha all of a sudden, instead of just being the follower of Elijah, now has the same power to do the miracles and, and, and set the world on its head that Elijah had. The difference is here, it's not just that Elijah is gone in a fiery chariot, leaving Elisha to do all the work. It's that Jesus is saying, hey, be my witnesses, and I'm going to stay with you through the power of the Spirit. Lo, I am with you to the very end of the age. Jesus is not transferring something to us and then leaving us. Jesus is saying, I promise I am going to be with you forever. How are you going to get the courage to go to your next door neighbor and tell them about Christ? How are you going to have the courage to go to your family members who don't know him and to live for Jesus and to proclaim the truth of the gospel to them through Jesus by his spirit the same way that Jesus did when he was here Jesus says I can't do anything except by the will of the father and by the power of his spirit I give that spirit to you I give this mission to you we are to live, as I said at the beginning, with the spirit of expectation. Jesus is going to return. We are eschatological Christians. We live with a firm understanding of what the end time is going to be about. It's going to be about Jesus returning in judgment on a lost world. And our whole goal is to bring as many people with us as we can. We want to see our loved ones with us, but we also want to see our enemies with us in eternity, in heaven. Secondly, we have to understand this happens through the power of the Spirit, and as this sermon series unfolds, we're going to get deeper and deeper. Now, here's your challenge for this week. Doug said, please read through the book of Acts. I say to you, go through the book of Acts, and every time you see anything that says, by the Spirit, or by the power of the Spirit, underline it. Count it up. See how many times it says, I've done this. I've done it many times. 
If you can get the right number, come and find me next week and tell me, Dave, I found that there were X number of references to the Holy Spirit and his power throughout the book of Acts. Everything that you see that happens in the book of Acts is done by the Spirit. Now, I'll be preaching down at East Campus next week, so if you can find me, more power to you. I'm not promising you any gifts. It'll be just a gift by doing that. But understand that this is a book about the Spirit. It's about the ruling power of Jesus Christ, but it's about his greatest gift to us, which is the Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. And lastly, we have a mission. We are supposed to go to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria. This is just Christ's way of saying the same thing that's said in Isaiah 49.6, right? When it says, I will make you a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the world. We end this by looking at the cloud. <laughs> when Jesus had said these things, in verse 9, they were looking on. He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. I love this verse. The original verb here is not an idea that Jesus, these men, these 11, were looking up into the sky, and Jesus was like, into the clouds. That's not what we're supposed to see. These guys understood. There was a cloud, yes, but it... It enwrapped Jesus. It, the idea is it came beneath him and was a platform upon which lifted him into the very presence of God to his right hand. And the church would make this part of their doxology, a part of their worship, a part of their liturgy for the first three, four hundred years. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father making advocacy for you and for me. And he sent his spirit in his absence to us so that we may live the same kind of life that he lived in the Gospels. And our point is, we can't just keep it to ourselves. We can't just share it with our spouse, with our kids. We share it with anybody that has a question about our faith. That's the power of this passage. This morning... We're going to take communion. Hopefully you got a hold of a little chalice on your way in this morning. And as we take in communion, we are going to turn to 1 Corinthians, to Paul's writings, where he tells us what happened right before these events that we read about this morning, as a matter of fact. And Paul says this, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Holy Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise of your return, of your son coming back in those same cloud as those men said, What are you looking at? Go! In the same way that you saw Jesus leave, so shall he return. That is our hope. That is our excitement. Father, in the meantime, 
we humbly say thank you for the gift of salvation that your son has given us that his body was broken that his blood was poured out so that we might have a personal relationship with you father may the spirit animate us may we be so mission focused father that our lives are lived not in isolation not in expectation of retirement but in the hope of your return and a feeling of being compelled to share the hope and truth that we have with those who are lost. We ask this in your son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen.